This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of Peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I want to start with a little bit of a personal story. Not to, The whole talk is not going to be a personal story, but it has a point that goes very much with the theme I'd like to unpack with you of St. Catherine of Siena on secularism and the interior life. And it's just for you to imagine, what do prudent people do when a storm is coming at the beach? I mean, most people who have a lot of intelligence and life experience, when a storm is coming, they clear the beach. In fact, the lifeguards go off duty. Everyone goes off duty. And I have to admit that before I entered the convent, I wasn't always the most prudent. And I lived at the beach one summer and a big storm was coming, which meant the surf was bigger than usual. And I was extremely excited about that. And I decided to challenge, take on the challenge of beach swimming. I, I loved to beach swim. I was a very strong beach swimmer at the time, so it wasn't entirely imprudent, but the storm was coming. I really thought it would just be an adventure, that I could fight these enormous waves, that I would feel this kind of thrill of the, the power of the sea, um, and I thought that would be amazing. But I completely underestimated how powerful the current would be. And if you've ever, well, you shouldn't, but if you ever try to swim when a major storm is coming, it's, it's not just that the waves are really big and they're really strong. It's that at least on the Atlantic coast where I was swimming, the undertow was incredibly strong. And the current was mostly pulling me under and out to the ocean. And there was no one on the beach, okay? No lifeguards, no people. Now, I dove into this water thinking I could take on this challenge. And I realized really quickly that I was probably going to drown. <laughs> um, and that this was probably the worst choice I've ever made. Well, not the worst, but one of the worst. Um, but then I realized the only way I could actually keep from going out to sea or under was if I could kind of go in the current that was running parallel to the shore. So I got in the stream of that current that was going parallel to the shore. And I just just tried to stay afloat. That's it. Well, it was taking me really far from where I started and not where I wanted to be. There was absolutely no way for me to go into the shore for a very long time. So I just kept swimming and swimming and swimming. Pretty sure I wasn't going to make it. Okay. And eventually the storm left a couple hours probably later, and I was really far from where I started. Um, but I eventually was able to get onto the sand. I literally lay down on the sand and just collapsed. <laughs> I don't know how long I was there, um, but eventually I got up and I was able to walk back to where I started, but it was a really long walk and I was in a land I didn't really know. Now, what is this story that actually happened in my teens? And I'm sitting here telling it, so obviously I didn't drown, have to do with my topic of St. Catherine's thought on secularism in the interior life. Well, if you have happened to read any of her dialogue, which is the most famous book written by Catherine, I say written by Catherine, it's really literally the recording of the writing down of Catherine saying out loud what she experienced in a dialogue with God. So really the father is the one who's supposed to be speaking in this book, but it's, I will refer to it as what Catherine writes, even though it's, she's writing, she's saying what the father says. 
But why do I think about this is that when Catherine started to pray for the world, she was so passionately concerned about the fact that when she looked around society, and this is the 14th century, right? She looked around, she sees all this division, all this dishonesty. There was plague, there was, um, there was dissension in the church, there was scandal among the clergy, there were people who were not living well. And Catherine looked at all of this and she was so worried that souls were being lost and that people weren't finding God. And so she asked God to show her what she could do to love the world better, okay? And the image that she, she, she writes about in the dialogue is the image she saw in prayer. And she basically saw this strong flowing river, this river that the current was really swift and that there were all these people in the river just being dragged along, okay? And when God spoke to her about what was going on in that river, um, it was a river that if you don't step out of, will actually threaten your life, will threaten your well-being. And the, the and God revealed to her that the only way to not drown in that river was to step onto the bridge who literally is Christ himself. I mean, an image I'm going to unpack in the midst of this talk. Now, for Catherine, this was really painful to see all these people in this river. And, and I have to say, when I, I, right now I have the gift of teaching philosophy, and I was thinking that when Socrates says that the unexamined life is not worth living, I repeat it much to my students, because I think if we just go into the river, I, for me, this is any era, any time period. If we're simply living, like being carried along by the culture around us, if we're not intentional about how we live, it seems to me that we're, there's a threat that we really could drown or at least end up somewhere very far from the ground of our existence. I mean, I think of my own experience trying to swim on that beach that day. I was very far from where I started and not at all where I wanted to be by the time I ended up. And I underestimated the power of that current. And I think that can happen to any one of us. If we kind of walk through life without examining it, we just live as life comes day by day, I think we can miss where we're being taken by a culture that has many very powerful um, means to draw us into a certain current. Um, but in order to consider that a little bit more, I want to think about firstly, two different ways of seeing the world. Catherine, when she was having this vision from God, she was, she was praying for the world. And I think when you, when you, the danger of talking about secularism is to act as though somehow the society we live in, the world we live in, is in some, in some sense negative in and of itself. And if we look at the Bible, there's definitely two very distinct ways of looking at the world. And I think the first is the world as the people created, loved, redeemed by God. And that's what we see in John 3.16, you know, the famous football sign verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. I think this is what Catherine's praying about is that she knows God loves the world. She knows that if we were just left to our own devices, we actually might perish. And so how do we, how do we kind of address that? But in the Bible, there's also this secondary sense of the world. And that's the world in the sense of the fallen world. Another way you could say that is humanity's resistance to God. It's found in the first letter of St. John, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where John writes, 
For all that is in the world, sensual lust, enticement for the eyes, and a pretentious life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Yet the world and its enticement are passing away, but whoever does the will of God remains forever. So already in the scriptures, there's a sense of the world can be spoken of as loved by God, redeemed, okay, a beautiful place of the people that God wants to save, but also as a kind of force that that kind of has an anti-God kind of feel to it. Now, it's really interesting because I, I decided to do a quick little etymology look at the word secular, because if I'm going to use a word in my title, I need to say it. And what I saw in this in this little quick review of literature was that in classical Latin, secum was an age or a span of time. So, you know, we even hear this in the, in the prayers of the church in secula, seculorum, amen, forever and ever, amen, just a span of time. By the 1300s, it was used as a term to separate out the clerical, the clergy, from the rest, those who were not in the clerical state, okay? So it was like the clergy were one state of living, and then the secular, the secular were the clergy who were not in a religious community. So it was like within those who are priests, there was the secular clergy and there was the, the clergy that were religious. And even within the 1300s, it was, a, it was also applied to things that were of the state as opposed to things of the church. By the 14th century, so this is the time of Catherine Siena, the word secular is starting to take on the meaning belonging to the world and even taking on a kind of spiritual connotation that it's concerned in the earthly more than in the spiritual life. And at least sources and etymology say that by the mid 19th century in the English language, especially influenced by the rise of humanism and post-scientific revolution, you have the idea of secularism or the secular as exclusion of belief in God, especially in matters of ethics, morality, and the structuring of society. Okay. So it's very interesting uh, how a word evolved to mean something quite far, I would say, from its original meaning. It's just talking about a time period and then a distinction within the clergy, then a distinction kind of of a more spiritual emphasis versus a more material emphasis. And ultimately, of a way of separating God, kind of bracketing God out of the picture of how society works. So in naming this talk, St. Catherine on secularism and the interior life, I think that her view of the vision she was given of the souls of those who were in the river is really a form not just of the secular world, not just the world as it is in itself, but a kind of secularism a kind of way of approaching life as if God were not part of the world and God were not in the picture. So to unpack this a little, we have to look at a little bit of the bad news first, but I promise you that there's a greater good news coming. When the father showed Catherine this image of the river just really pulling people along and ultimately trying to drown them, she saw that in this river there was actually a tree rooted that is called the tree of death. And it had, bears certain fruits that poisons those who are in the river. Now, there are a lot of different translations of the phrase that appears most in this section of Catherine's treatment. When she talks about what is the principal kind of like poison that happens to people who are caught in this current and being pulled further and further from God and believing that God is part of the equation of living is this selfish sensuality is that the river tends to make people think more of themselves than of God and others. 
And the river tends to get us grounded more in the sensual, the, the experience of the sensate, rather than in the things of reason, she says, in, in the way that she writes. And what is the sign, she kind of asks the father, she has this vision, that someone is, is caught in that river. Besides sensual, selfish sensuality, which is um, sometimes translated, depending on the edition you have, um, selfish self-love. And I think that the, probably that's not a good translation because it's, we're supposed to love ourselves in a proper and healthy sense. But so selfish self-love sounds odd. Okay? But I think it is this idea that when we turn in on ourselves um, and become mostly grounded in just what brings us maximally kind of our own personal sensate pleasure, it does cause a distortion at the level of the soul. So Catherine writes a lot about the human person through the lens of our memory, our understanding, and our will. Those three powers of the soul. It's a little different than a classical Thomistic distinction. So she says that one of the signs that we're living in this is that we have a distortion of these. And when she starts talking about this, I just think, you know, I teach ethics. And, and when I teach ethics, I say to my students, we're not here to condemn or judge everybody else. That's too easy, right? <laughs> we're not here to look out and say, oh, look at all those people and what they think. I think when Catherine's receiving this vision and we hear what is it that characterizes life in that river, that kind of going with the flow that is potentially carrying us away from God? It's really, it's too easy to say it's in our culture. I think maybe where we have to look is say, how much of this is in my own heart? Um, and Catherine says, as she's hearing from the father, that our sensual affections want to love sensual things. And what happens is that our understanding moves where our senses are drawn. So instead of loving what's good and noble, we actually form, because it seems to war against our sensual <laughs> desires, a contempt for virtue and a love of vice, which is like the opposite of what we were made to be. But she writes, and again, this is her what she hears from God, that it's because when we start looking at the things that bring us just passing pleasures, the things that are just part of the pop culture, shall we say, she actually, it's actually translated as glitter. They're like glitter, okay? I never thought glitter would be in Catherine's dinner, but anyway, but it's like you look at it and it's sparkly. It's kind of dazzling. It's kind of like, wow, that looks kind of good. Um, and she said, and so that's why your affections are drawn to the things that bring you the most immediate pleasures. Actually, that's when Thomas Aquinas writes about why do so few people pursue the greater intellectual gifts is that he says it's because things that are of the senses are so much more immediate. They're so much easier to attain, but they bring so much less and so much shorter satisfaction to the human person. So it's kind of a catch-22, right? Like we go after the things that are glittery, that, that look good, okay? But what happens is that the more we go after them, the more our understanding actually loses the light of God's grace. And vice becomes to look good. And, and it's interesting because Catherine says something that I find a really haunting line. And to be honest with you, it reminds me of where a lot of modern and postmodern philosophy and literature and art land. She says that those who become so blinded by this pursuit of the false goods, the illusory goods, or the goods that aren't deep enough to satisfy us, end up, this is the phrase directly from her writing, they become unbearable to themselves. They become unbearable to themselves. You know, there's this very interesting phenomena um, of finding ourselves unbearable. And I think from the point of view of this writing, 
it's because we've actually come to believe that what is not good is good. We've literally reversed the roles of reality. Um, and so that blindness has certain, ca- certain you know, qualities. She basically says after saying we become unbearable that those who want to rule the world find themselves ruled by nothingness. Doesn't that, this sounds like, like a modern philosopher. I mean, it's very interesting that in the 14th century, she was already writing this. And she basically says, because when, when we kind of invert the order of truth in our being, we, be, we ultimately kind of despair. And so she says, so what marks this being dragged along in the river, this kind of not intentional way of living, this kind of just going with the flow of a materialistic and sensual, selfish kind of a culture. The number one characteristic of this is pride. And the way she describes pride, again, it seems so con- so contemporary to me, even though this is written. I think that's the mark of a saint. You know, I mean, is that they, they're writing something centuries ago, but it's so grounded in the reality of the human person and God that it has it speaks to us today. Says, so what is this pride that is the, the principal vice of when we're living in the river and not pursuing the things of God. It starts with a stubborn self-reliance. We think we have to do everything for ourselves and that we can do everything for ourselves. And if you can imagine how like our modern technological world kind of feeds into that self-reliance, very easy for us to fall into it. I also think it's a kind of one of the traps of, it's the flip side of the positive side of American kind of fierce independence, right? Um, Is that we can be very sure of ourselves. It's very interesting because when I give talks on virtue and I say to people, look, nowhere in the Bible is independence of virtue. Nowhere. Okay. Like we were actually by status as creatures, we are made to be dependent. And what happens when we become totally self-reliant or think we can be self-reliant, we refuse to acknowledge that we need God and other people. And we also become ungrateful, she says. It's very interesting. What does that, and then it blinds us to value. Um, because the more we become proud, the more we think we rely on ourselves, the less we see things as they really are. And she goes like a whole kind of list of what are the things that kind of become um, part of the way of being of a person who doesn't leave this pride behind. Lustful impurity, greedy materialism, all kinds of injustice, arrogance, endless concern for being better than others. I'll leave it. You, you just can fill in the blanks of where you see this in our culture and in ourselves. Stubbornly self-opinionated, dishonest in order to gain advantage over others, competitive and envious. The, the desire becomes to have power at the cost of truth and justice. Desiring neither to honor God nor to serve other people because pride ultimately clouds our judgment. And she says, and again, I find this absolutely amazing that the person who becomes really proud in the river is forever taking scandal at those who are actually trying to live a virtuous life, judging virtue to be hypocritical. I mean, I definitely think I see it. I read it. I hear it that sometimes people think like any attempt to get out of the river, (laughs) to get out of the cultural stream is somehow hypocritical rather than an attempt to live in truth and justice. Now, The next thing she says about the people in the river is that impatience grows in the soul of those who are in the river too long. And it's interesting because she sees this as a bit ironic that it's part of being in the cultural flow in the river to desire to escape suffering. But she says the more people try to escape suffering, 
often the worse they fall into it because of that very distortion of values. Why? Because they look at getting out of the river, at trying to live a reformed lifestyle, trying to be more just, of trying to be more concerned for other people. And they think that's going to cause suffering. They're like, oh, it's going to be so hard if I were to try to live my life a different way. So demanding. And the father says to Catherine that when people are first trying to like turn their life around, when they're trying to get out of the river, when they're trying to in some way not just go with that unexamined life and avoid the traps of secularism and pride, that the life of living another way seems so hard that they easily turn back. So looking at this whole situation, Catherine saw this vision of the people in the river and she was just traumatized. I mean, she said, this is horrible. Like, how can there be so many people who are being lost? But the father said to her, that's not the end of the story. And then she's given this vision where she comes to understand that for anyone who wants to get out of the river of secularism, out of the river of the life divided against God, Christ himself became the bridge. He is literally the bridge that we can climb out of the river onto the bridge and make a journey to God and to the Father. Now, a lot of the saints wrote about the spiritual life, the interior life, as, as a life that has three fundamental stages. That's not original to Catherine. It's not solo to Catherine. That it involves Christ himself, like literally a physical image of Christ, is unique to Catherine. <laughs> um, so most of the great saints in the spiritual tradition say, if we were to pursue the life of the, of the interior life, the spiritual life, we would basically go through a purgative way of purification, an illuminative way when we're discovering more what it is to live for God and live for truth, and a unitive way in which we become so one with God that we actually don't still fight the battles of the early stage, okay? Now, Catherine does have that kind of threefold pattern, but what she sees is quite unique. She sees this literally in terms of relating to Christ himself. And so what she sees is that, and she's interceding for these people in the river, and she's like, what do they have to do to not drown? What can we do to not drown, to not just be drawn under in this proud, competitive, materialistic world that we find ourselves in? Well, you have to be willing to step out of that current and get onto the bridge. And the father says to her, like, I can't forcibly take people out of the river. They have to actually want to climb onto the bridge. And Catherine writes a lot about human desire and its role in, in growing in, in the interior life. And she says that, you know, obviously our desires are stirred by what we perceive as a good. And so what's interesting is the father says to her, when people are in this in the river, pursuing their very worldly pursuits, he often enables suffering to come, not because suffering in itself is a good. Suffering in itself is not a good. I think that's a mistake people make a lot of, about Christianity because they see the suffering Christ and think, oh, you know, suffering in itself must be somehow seen as good. No, okay. But um, in in the, in God's explanation to Catherine of why He lets us suffer, is He says, you know. I need to kind of show them that the emptiness of what they've been pursuing. And, and as someone who's, you know, worked in pastoral ministry and teaching and, and with people for a long time in my life, I see this all the time, is that if, if you're on a path that really is a self-centered, a kind of selfish sensuality, as Catherine says, it's very common to hit a wall, to hit that point where you do feel this like unbearableness of yourself. <laughs> and I think um, that's a mercy. It's a moment of grace. It's a moment of, where 
from the father's point of view, he shows us how empty it is to, to just be dragged along in the current. He shows us that it's not a way of bringing us real happiness and flourishing. So that even if we just want to get out of that flow just for kind of even selfish desires, it can start with that imperfect desire. If, if you remember in the Bible, the story of the prodigal son, it's kind of an anatomy of this process. You know, he goes off. He says, I don't need you. I, he, gave, he does exactly what we described here. I don't need my family. I don't want my father. I just want my inheritance. I want to live my way. I don't want you. And goes off and makes a mess of everything <laughs> and pursues the glitter of the things that seem to be satisfactions for him. But it's interesting that when he first decides that he wants to go back to the father, he doesn't do it for love of the father. He doesn't do it for like a great motive. He does it because he's starving. It says he was so hungry, he just longed to even eat the like pods he was feeding to the pigs, okay? And even that no one would give him, you know? And I think that's a great biblical image for what Catherine's describing here is that when, if we just go with the cultural flow, if we just don't even reflect about where our life is going, we hit that wall and we find that emptiness. And that emptiness and that feeling of kind of non-meaning can be an amazing entry point. Because if we know that there is an alternative, if we know that there is a way that we could kind of step out of that, even if we just begin that process, Christ is the one who meets us in grace in that process. And so she talks about getting out of the river as literally like physically stepping up onto the feet of Christ. Okay, so she's literally going to use like the body of Christ as this image. So she talks about this is the first stair you have to climb in the spiritual life is leaving the river behind saying, I've had enough of just going with the flow, living the cultural norm and being willing to step onto the feet of Christ where you begin to be purified of selfishness. And when you start to like walk with Christ, I mean, if you watch like a little kid learning to walk, walk on the feet of another person, if we start walking with Christ, walking on the bridge of Christ, then we start to like really question the values that the world has taught us. We start to realize, are there other goods? Are there things more worth living for than what I've been pursuing so far? And the father says to Catherine, this stage can be really painful depending on how attached you were to the values of the world. The more you are attached to the values of the world, the more it's hard. But he points out that that's why it's so important to note that there is actually a lot of help on this bridge. And even though I know we live in a very individualistic moment and most people don't want to hear about the church's capacity to help us, um, the father says to Catherine, this bridge, which is Christ, is not just like a personal relationship with the Lord, which it is, but it, it, is, it has stones around it and a roof over it. Now, if any of you have ever been to the beautiful city of Florence in Italy, if you've ever seen the Ponte Vecchio, um, many scholars of Catherine's thought think that she probably was thinking about that kind of a bridge when she wrote this. Like a bridge, if you've been there, the bridge isn't just a regular bridge. It has all these shops kind of along the side and part of it is covered. And Catherine has an elaborate image in this part. She says, you know, when you're stepping up onto the bridge of Christ, there's a lot of crosswinds. There's still all the current going below of the rushing water. And so it's easy to fall off. When we first say, I don't want to live just in the cultural flow of things. I actually want to commit myself to following Christ in some way. Well, there's going to be a lot of cross current. But she says this bridge has stones that are like the virtues 
And those virtues are held together by the mortar of the blood of Christ. And on this bridge is a hostelry, an inn for pilgrims. And if you go into that place, you receive both rest and nourishment. And so it's really interesting that she sees the church not just in institutional structures, but as this safe haven that as you're trying to like navigate the crosswinds of our culture, the raging waters below the bridge, you can actually go and find rest and nourishment. And really, that's what the life of the church is meant to be, that the word of God gives us nourishment for our minds, our hearts. It gives us like a message that a truth that can counteract some of the selfishness of what we may have been part of in the world. And it literally, you get fed there. Literally, the, the, the gift of the Eucharist gives you the strength to keep walking this journey. She says, if you stay on that in that first step and like literally let your affections be directed by God's word and God's way of doing things, you start to have a reintegration of your personhood. And she says, you're healed in your memory, your understanding, and your will. And so your memory stops just holding on to the things of this world, and it actually starts to be filled with the goodness God's showing you and the mercy God's showing you. Your understanding comes to grasp something of the truth that is being revealed to you in Christ. So your will begins to desire differently. You know, this is why if a person goes through a conversion experience of some kind, and then they go to, you know, and they're back with their family and friends after that experience, and people are like, what's the matter with you? You don't even like the things you used to like, or you're, you're, you're drawn to different things. Well, it's because your memory, your understanding, your will are healed as you begin to walk with Christ. And so you start to see true goods as truly good. And you start to not desire the things that were actually vices and actually leading you away. So if you keep walking with Christ, she believes that you ascend above the feet of Christ. And literally she envisions the second stair as you've actually climbed and now you're looking into the pierced side of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very mystical kind of explanation, right? For, for very practical people, this might be hard to imagine. But what she's saying, that when you walk long enough in letting go of selfish kinds of desires and you let yourself be purified, even if that's hard, even if it's painful, okay? And you start to be being reshaped, okay? So that you start to desire true goods. Eventually, looking into the pure side of Christ is when you actually begin to really know how loved you are by God. You know, it's not enough to know a bunch of things about religion. <laughs> it's not enough to know a bunch of teachings. We ultimately have to encounter a love that utterly transforms us. And Catherine believes that the second step of climbing to the heart of Christ and looking at his pierced heart, it's like, it's her analogy really for coming to know ourselves as truly loved. Now, that is not an easy experience for any of us. I mean, what is the, why are we, you know, so often bombarded with so many messages about like, why are we all so lonely? What's going on? Why are people so isolated? We blame it on COVID, but we're like, okay, what's really going on in the human heart? If we've forgotten to look to the greatest love there is to understand how loved we are, then it's not surprising that we're going to have a challenge. And what happens, Catherine says, the more you come to know God's love for you is that 
you not only leave behind selfish patterns of behavior, pride and arrogance and all that competition, but you actually begin to long for virtue. It's very interesting that it's when you know you're loved is when you begin to, to want to be different. I think sometimes we get this really backwards in ethical theory. It's like, I've got to get, got to fix myself. I've got to be good so that people will love me. Well, that's not how it works with God. God loves us. And when we know how loved we are, we want to live virtue. Now, even on the human level, I believe that's true. It's very interesting. I mean, I've, I worked for a long time with young people and I find that there, there can be a little anxiety about whether people love them and whether people think they're good. And especially when they make overt and obvious mistakes, they think that somehow if, if you knew their mistake, they, you wouldn't love them. And I find that I have to be really like direct with them. I would never stop loving you because you made a mistake. Like, I already love you. And I think the more that they, they experience a love that is already unconditional, the more we experience a love that loves us first, <laughs> is that then we want to kind of like grow into that love in a sense. I mean, every good parent knows this, right? <laughs> every wise person who does any kind of ministry with others knows we love first. And so the more you know God's love for you, then you want to grow in virtue. And Catherine says, just like you had those vices of being in the cultural flow, the, the river, the secularist kind of perspective, you will know when you're beginning to grow in virtue by what it looks like. And the prince, just like pride was the principal vice of the other stage, humility is the mark of the person who's actually beginning to understand how loved they are. Now, humility is one of those virtues that kind of gets a bad rap. <laughs> and I think it's because people don't understand what it is. Humility is not false self-deprecation. It's not disowning your own gifts and your own strengths. Humility is truth. It's the truth of who you are before God and before yourself and before others. And Catherine writes a lot in her writings about how important it is to come to know the truth of ourselves. And she says, you're not going to know the truth of yourself just by what the world says about you. I mean, I think it's one of the river things to let the world tell you who you are. How many people follow you? How many people like what you're posting? How many people respond to you on social media is not a measure of your reality, okay? The measure of your reality is knowing yourself in Christ. And she, she says this, and I repeat it a lot in talks because I find it really important. She uses this phrase that we have to enter into the cell of self-knowledge. And she means like you actually have to reflect and come to know your real self, okay? But she says, it's not enough to just do it like in yourself, like just to be like, okay, I'm gonna come to know myself. She said, self-knowledge is like a two-chambered room. And she says, the outer chamber is what you think about yourself just in yourself. And even I would say reflected by others, you know, what the world tells you you are. I teach a lot of teenagers right now. And believe me, when I ask them, what does the world tell you you are? The messaging is horrible, never enough. Never, never good looking enough, never talented enough, never smart enough. You can be, I mean, the perfectionism about grades in the academic world, people crash over missing, you know, one percentage point on something. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, why do you think that? I think that's river, that's river, right? Like, to know yourself in the outer chamber, she said, actually only leads you to discouragement if you're just trying to know yourself, just yourself or what the world tells you you are. You have to enter what she calls the inner chamber, where you know yourself in Christ. And again, looking at yourself through the eyes of one who actually loves you. You know, if you have access to Eucharistic adoration, I think there is nothing like going in front of the Blessed Sacrament and there in front of the Blessed Sacrament saying, 
who do you say that I am? I think it's the most powerful way of praying that you say, who do I say you are? That's a question Jesus asked in his lifetime. He asked his followers, who do you say that I am? It's one of the most important questions you have to answer. Who do you say he is? Because your answer to that makes all the difference. But I would also say his answer to that to you makes all the difference. Who does he say you are? There was a stage in my life where I was so feeling like a failure. Something had happened in my life that I really was seeing as a failure. And I, not, I didn't take it just as the I failed in this particular task or this thing. I took it as I am a failure. Isn't that the way our, the voice in our head works, right? <laughs> like it's like, I didn't do well in this and therefore I'm a failure. And that was all I could hear. And this really wise priest said to me, I don't think that's the voice of God at all. And he's like, I can't imagine that's how he sees you. And he said, I just want you to go and pray. I just want you to go and say to God, how do you see me? And I think every one of those voices you're listening to right now is in his. And that's what Catherine's talking about. If you want to really know yourself in humility, it's not false self-deprecation. It's not listening to the illusory voices of ourselves or our culture that tells us we're never enough. It's about listening to the voice of the one who created you. The one who, that moment when he had that unique, irrepeatable, utterly only one time ever, ever, ever in history idea that is you. Thought that idea was so amazing, he had to create it. Talk about the basis of human dignity, <laughs> the irrepeatable, the irreducible in the human person. That you were at one time, only one time ever, thought of God that was so amazing. He, had, he loved you into being. Okay. That is who you really are. And she understands that if we come to that kind of self-knowledge, then we're not afraid to depend on God because we do depend on God. And if you learn how to correctly depend on God, you actually learn what it means to depend on others. It's not shameful to depend on others. It's absolutely human. It's part of being human. Another virtue of those who've climbed and seen how loved they are by God is the virtue of patience. Now, I don't know about you, but patience is not the number one virtue I tend to think of in most people, including when I look in the mirror. But what is patience really? It's not just you can deal with things that take too long and <laughs> make you frustrated, okay? Patience is literally willing to, being willing to undergo, being willing to suffer, frankly. That's what patience is. We don't really live in a time, I really, she, you know, she uses impatience as one of the marks of the life in the river. Patience is willing to endure, willing to suffer, not again because suffering is a good in itself because it's not. Willing to endure because that's what love costs. Willing to endure because that's what love costs in a broken world. You know, if you think about everything that really is worth achieving and doing as a human requires a certain degree of suffering. I, we live in this moment of great illusion of we can just technologically keep progressing, 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 and we can eliminate all suffering. And now we've come to the point where we even debate, should we just eliminate the suffering one? To be patient is part of humility. To recognize that the things of love and of life actually take time <coughs> and they actually have a cost, but that that cost is worth it. This is a mark of having known yourself in Christ because who is willing to endure for the sake of love supremely? <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, he was willing to endure everything because he loved you. It's not generic. 
<laughs> Christianity is never a generic religion. It's not a, you know, the salvation of the whole world. It's you. He wanted you to be with him. He wanted you to be pulled out of that river. He wanted you not to drown. He wanted you to be with him forever. And so patience is the second of the virtue she says we grow in. And then the third virtue she highlights besides humility and patience is perseverance. Is she says, you know, we have to stick with the life of trying to seek to not go back into that river. And is it gonna be tough? Yes. <laughs> Again, every noble and good thing in this world takes not only patience, but perseverance. You know, if we give up the second something gets hard, and the father says to Catherine, this is the temptation. When we hit challenges, when we find it hard to walk the ways of Christ, we're always tempted to turn back, but we have to persevere. And what do we need to persevere in most when she talks about that second stage is prayer. She, she writes a lot in this section about how Every time you go to sit down and pray, you're going to be drawn to do a thousand other things. <laughs> okay? Every time you think, I'm going to devote time to prayer, it's going to be like, no, no, there's all these practical things that need to get done. I'll pray then. I'll pray later. Or why should I even try to pray? The second I try to pray, I'm so distracted by all the things I have to get done. Well, let me just tell you a little secret about distraction. Okay? There is nothing that you can't bring into prayer. If you're trying to just be in the presence of God and talk with God and listen to God, whatever are the things coming in your mind, events, people, relationships, tensions, projects, things, bring them right into the prayer. Really, distraction is a myth, okay? Like, distraction is like a word that we we kind of think there's something that could take us away, and all you have to do is bring it right into the prayer. And distraction doesn't exist. So whoever you're thinking about, pray for them. (laughs) Whatever you're worried about, ask God to bless it, okay? You don't have to be deterred. And why does she say it's so important for us to persevere in prayer? Because we need to be in communication with the God who loves us. We need to let there be an antidote to all the voices, all the current that's trying to pull us in a totally different direction. Everyone, I mean, I live as a religious sister. I have hours a day dedicated to prayer. And I can tell you, it is easy to get back in the river. It's easy to become competitive. It's easy to think that there's some measure of who I am as a person that is not God's love for me and not my dignity as his beloved. Okay. And if it's easy for me, I mean, I can't even imagine how easy it is for the people I teach, the people I work with. So we have to persevere in prayer. Even if it feels like we're doing nothing, the father says to Catherine, keep praying. If it feels like I've stepped away, it's actually because I need to purify you. Because if I give you consolation, if I give you a felt perception of prayer every time you pray, you come to desire your own consolation more than you desire me. He actually says it's so part of the human heart that we we want the gift more than the giver. And so he says, so sometimes I will step back. Just like when he wants to draw us into that first moment of conversion, he'll step back and let us feel the emptiness of some of our choices. Sometimes in prayer, he steps back so that we don't feel good about praying. But if we just continue to seek God, he is with us. He's not gone away. He's there and he's loving us. He's sustaining us. But he might be purifying us so that we can learn how to love him more than just the consolation we get from him. Because even in prayer, we have that selfishness struggle (laughs) that I want it for my own consolation rather than I want it for you, Lord. I want it for you. Now, if a soul walks along that way of virtue, humility, 
patience, perseverance. Catherine envisions that we can climb to the third stage. And what is at the third stage is on the body of Christ's bridge, where you actually come to the mouth of Christ and you receive what she calls the kiss of peace. And what does that mean? It's, it's parallel to in the scriptures when Christ breathed the Holy Spirit over the apostles. If you remember in the Christian narrative, it's really powerful. During the time when Christ was undergoing his passion, what were the apostles like? They had lived with him for three years. They had walked with him, okay? In a sense, they had formed a certain kind of bond with him, but they really had a rough go of it when suffering came. I mean, we're, we're not alone when we have a rough go of it when suffering comes. Um, and they even, even Peter, and actually Catherine writes about him in this part of the text, um, you know, Peter, who swore he would do anything for Christ, even laid down his life for him, when it came time of Christ's sufferings, he denied he even knew him, you know? Why? Because he was so afraid of the suffering. But what happened when those very same disciples received Christ after his resurrection, breathes the Holy Spirit over them when he appears to them in the upper room? And then at Pentecost, they have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What happens when we receive the kiss of peace, when the Holy Spirit is breathed over us, when we become so one with God, that we're actually living from the grace of the Holy Spirit is that we become totally integrated. That what we desire is what God desires. That our understanding is full of the light of truth. Okay. And that therefore we will what God wills. And so a person who achieves that unitive state, that state of really being one with Christ becomes absolutely fearless in living for Christ. Now, that is not something that we achieve at the beginning stages. At the beginning stages, most of us are just trying to survive, <laughs> trying to just not fall back into the river, right? Okay. But when we walked in virtue long enough, it's when the spirit is moving in and through us that we're able to live at a whole different level. And we're not seeing the world's enticements as enticing anymore. Because once you see truth, once you're really walking illumined to know truth, you know what's really good. You don't even want the things that aren't good. You want what's good. And you desire to be one with the Lord, even if it means suffering. And in fact, you might be kind of blown away if you read this in the lives of saints. Sometimes they even desire to suffer. And again, it's not because suffering in itself is good. It's because they actually want a deeper purification of themselves, but they also actually want to unite their own sufferings to the sufferings of Christ as a prayer of intercession for the healing of our world. And it sounds really almost almost beyond our imagining, but this is where all of the saints arrived, really, is they, they knew themselves in Christ so deeply, knew how loved they were so truly, that they come to a stage, and Catherine describes it as like a levels three and four. She uses a lot of mixed metaphors in her writing. Father Paul Murray, great Irish Dominican, he said, Catherine's a great saint, but she's a terrible poet. Anyway, because she mixes her metaphors everywhere, and it's true. When you read the, the dialogue, you can get you can get lost in all of the images. But she says that this third level, that when you become so one with God, that you're willing to follow wherever he leads, that you want to do his will no matter what that means, it always leads you to step four, which is a fearless and tireless love for your neighbor. She said, you're never going to become so one with God without also wanting to do everything you possibly can to reach as many other people, which is why Catherine, who only lived 33 years, I mean, if you read her biography and realize she only lived 33 years, it's pretty amazing. I mean, she was a diplomat. She was, she was 
going to bring the Pope back to Rome. She was solving political problems in her society. She was tending the sick and the poor. She was taking care of things in her home. She was corresponding with people in every walk of life. She wrote to popes, emperors, princes, queens. I mean, she wrote to everybody. And she had this circle of followers who were literally learning from her the way of Christian discipleship. And she, she never backed down from serving other people because she was on fire, literally, with this idea of souls need to know how loved they are. She wrote this dialogue down. She's a doctor of the church. She's one of the four women who have been defined by the church as a doctor of the church, that her teaching is essential to the life of holiness of the church. And so God says to her, if you climb these stairs at the first step, putting off vice, redirecting your affections, learning how to not love the things of selfishness, but to love real values. If you climb to that second place where you know how loved you are in God, you begin to love virtue. If you keep persevering in humility and prayer and patience, you can come to that third step where you actually have such spiritual peace that you become an instrument for the healing of the whole world. Now, the father says to Catherine that there's a really interesting phenomena in that final stage, which he says, you are both happy and sad. And he said that this was actually what Christ experienced too. He said that Christ in his life had a certain sorrow, not only of the physical sufferings he endured, but of watching the many people who would reject him. And yet he was perfectly happy because he never lost his utter union with God. And he says to Catherine that if a soul becomes so one with God, that it really feels the heart of God, the movement of the heart of God, it will be both happy and sad. Now I have to admit, when I read this, I thought of St. Dominic. I'm a Dominican. And many people do not know a lot about the life of St. Dominic, even though they know Thomas Aquinas, who was a Dominican, and Catherine of Siena, who's a Dominican. Dominic is one of those kind of hidden saints. But this is what Catherine heard from the father, that a soul who has come to that ultimate stage of union endures physical pain as I permit it, the father speaking, and the cross of desire. They're crucifying sorrow at the offense done to me and the harm done to their neighbors. It was said of St. Dominic that he would weep every night. He would stay up almost the entire night. He barely ever slept. He had a certain kind of grace to do this. Um, and he would just weep saying, what will become of sinners? What will become of the world? They say there was no man who prayed more at night and preached more in the daytime than Dominic. And yet they are happy, I say, because the delight of charity makes them happy in a way that can never be taken away. And they say of Dominic that when he would go around preaching, you know, we don't have any written texts of Dominic except a very short letter he wrote, but he was the founder of the order of preachers. And people who witnessed him preach said, there was no more joyful preacher. So he would weep in prayer at night and he would preach with great joy in the day. That's heart of St. Dominic. And this is the charism that St. Catherine felt called to, to enter into. And I think that's what happens to the soul who becomes so one with God, that you have a joy that this world can't give, a peace that this world can't give. You know, Christ said it. There is a peace this world cannot give. And it's that peace of knowing yourself in God, knowing yourself loved, knowing yourself as an instrument of God's good for the world. But with it comes, I find this phrase amazing, crucifying sorrow. And so many of the saints, Padre Pio, St. Therese, you know, they, they experienced this sorrow that it's not the opposite of happiness. It was a corollary to their happiness. 
Because they knew the joy of being one with God, their hearts were moved by the suffering of this world. So they weren't looking at the world to condemn the world. They have the heart of Christ. I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Okay? They had the heart of Christ. So they, the father says to her, you, you will come to such a perfect union with God that you have compassion without pain. It's interesting that you enter into a kind of sorrow that it's so in the love of God and so real, but it's not painful in the same way you experience sorrow when you didn't know yourself in the Lord. And ultimately, the father says to Catherine that all three persons of the Trinity are working in us and through us to bring this to happen within us. The father says to her that when the son left this world, it might have seemed like the bridge was taken away. How were we going to come to the father out of the river of this culture, this secular world? But he said, there remained the bridgeway of his teaching. It's a, it's a very Dominican answer, right? But, but like that there's a teaching, there's a word, there's a truth. And remember what I said earlier about the hostelry of the church, the sacramental graces have not gone away. But the father speaks about each of the persons of the Trinity actually leading us to that place where we can leave the river and we can follow along the way of the bridge. And he says this, he says, my power, the father is speaking, gives the courage of the virtue of courage to those who follow this way. So the father says, I will give you courage, you know, facing up, standing up against the world. I mean, look at the great saints like Thomas More. I mean, I think we can think of these people as so long ago and forget they were just like us. Imagine yourself chancellor of England, a family you love, a circle of friends that you enjoy, uh, everything you wanted, the freedom to study, the freedom to, to pray, the freedom to be an influence in the country. And when you're faced with a law you just cannot stand for, being willing to see not only your own loss, but the loss of the people around you. I suspect that Thomas More suffered more the pain he caused to his wife and his, and his daughters than he did his own suffering in the imprisonment. And sometimes to follow Christ is going to cost something not just for us, but for the people we love. So the father tells Catherine, I'm going to give you courage flowing from my power. He says, the son is going to give you wisdom. The son will give you the wisdom so that you can know what is true. It's confusing the world we live in. Very confusing. Lots of counter messages. And we need to not just know data and information. I think we're on information overload and wisdom underload, right? I mean, we know a lot of stuff about stuff, but how wise are we? Do we know how to live? Do we know the meaning of our life? This is the wisdom the son will give us. And the spirit will fill you with love so that you will pursue virtue instead of vice, so that you will not be stuck in patterns of selfishness. So Catherine, having heard all this from the father, having seen this vision, in true Catherineian style, pours out her heart in prayer at the end of this section. She thanks the father and she says of him, I beg you, let my eyes never rest but in your grace make of them two rivers for the water that flows from you, the sea of peace. So there's this current, as I referred to in my swimming story at the beginning, this current of the culture that tries to draw us along. But she sees God as a sea of peace. She uses this image a lot for God. And she, cause she says, we're meant to be in God like the fish in the water. 
<laughs> like that his peace is literally what we breathe in. His peace is what surrounds us, envelops us. But she says, make her own eyes like rivers, because Catherine also has in the section following this, a really, really powerful section on the meaning of tears. She actually writes about the fact that when you come to love the world so much that you're willing to weep for the good of those who are lost, who are in that river, then, you're, then you've come to a place of profound union with God, of profound desire for the good of the people around you. And she even kind of bargains with God at the end. Catherine was a great bargainer. <laughs> she bargained with the Pope to bring him back to her. She was a great diplomat. She had amazing political skill. <laughs> she was able to try to start solving the Great Western Schism. She didn't live to see that solved in her lifetime. But she kind of barters with God. She says to God the Father, and this is my closing thought, for it would seem you would receive more glory and praise by saving so many people than by letting them stubbornly persist in their hardness. To you, eternal father, everything is possible. She's like affirming God. It's hilarious. But she says in, her, in the closing of this section of the dialogue, be merciful. Remake the vessels you created and formed in your image and likeness. Reform. It's hyphenated, not reform. Reform them to grace in the mercy and the blood of your son. So she doesn't just say, look at this hopeless culture. Look at the horrible society we live in. She loves, because Catherine is one who I think did progress these stages of the interior life. And I would say to you, God needs us, you, me. God needs people who are willing to step out of the current, kind of step onto the bridge, not in pride, in humility, in great humility. Recognize our dependence on God. Say yes to the call to serve others. To be enlightened to know what is really true. And to persevere in prayer for our world, for the people we love most. Thomas Aquinas has a wonderful insight about prayer. He says, sometimes people think that our prayer would be more effective, like if we were praying kind of for the generic, the world out there, or people in some far distant place. And he's like, no, actually charity is the measure of prayer. So the more you love, the more powerful your prayer is. So your most powerful prayers are for the people you love the most, the people in your own family, the people in your own circle of friends. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for other people in the world, but your most powerful prayers are for the people you love the most. And I don't think we're gonna know this side uh, of eternity, what our prayer really achieved. But, if we will learn how loved we are by gazing into the heart of Christ, I do believe we will be transformed. I do believe we will find the light, the wisdom, the strength to live differently, and that God will use that for the good of the entire world.